The 20th century was the Olympics of inhumanity. Our ability to travel and our technology crested in this century, just as the worst of us got the most power. While everyone has heard of the Nazis and the Holocaust, and most have heard of the gulags and Lysenkoism, few actually know the details of the Japanese invasion of what was then the Chinese capital, Nanking or Nanjing, and the atrocities perpetrated there. I want to be clear. This is difficult to talk about. This is the most egregious and disgusting event in human history. And of course, as anybody would rightfully point out, there is strong competition. But this affected me like nothing else. And I never heard about it in high school or undergrad or law school or any lecture, just incidentally. It might have shown up in a history book at some point or another kind of book in passing. But the author, Iris Chang, sought to bring this atrocity to the attention of a world that didn't want to acknowledge it. This is The Rape of Nanking, published 1997. And I wouldn't usually do this, but I'm going to issue a warning. Generally, adults need to know reality and stop coddling themselves and others. But I think it's justified in this case. So, as always, we'll go through the content. We'll do a, an analysis of the book to determine its virtues and vices as a work of nonfiction. And we'll go through kind of a big picture discussion of what it means. Okay, the contents. So the events occurred before World War II, from 1937 to 1938. It actually wasn't that long of a period of time. It was during the Second Sino-Japanese War. The Japanese believed themselves to be racially superior to the Chinese, and they ended up dominating Nanking for 14 years. Much of what we know about what happened there is from foreigners who happened to be in Nanking at the time. And of course, today, China has a different capital, but at the time, it was Nanking. So the events that led up to it, the Japanese launched a massive attack in 1937 and easily stomped through to the capital. Once there, they laid siege to the city. The forces there resisted briefly and were told if they surrendered, they would be spared. But they would not surrender and eventually fled. Once the Japanese overtook the city, it wasn't a mechanical or systematic purge. It was this wide, compulsive barbarism. Just as a start... Men were herded into groups and murdered with machine guns and bayonets, standard stuff. They would engage in, the Japanese would engage in, bayonet practice and decapitation practice, just to get good at it. Instances of people torn apart by German shepherds. And there was rape. We will discuss more fully a lot of these things as we go along. But before we get into more details, the author explains that she just really needed to document this. She heard about it from her parents. And then the thing that really spurred it for was seeing what happened in Tiananmen Square. The Japanese denied it happened at the time. And the author invokes Rashomon, the movie that was about by Akira Kurosawa, that was about multiple perspectives on the same event. And she talks about how there were three perspectives here, the Japanese, the victims, and the outsiders. And she really hoped to stir the conscience of Japan. That was the point of her writing this book. So some historical context is important. You have General Perry from America who went to Japan and issued the show of force with all these advanced, at the time, advanced technological weaponry with his boats, his steel boats, to force open Japanese trade. And the Japanese were blown away by the steel ships and they didn't want to give in to any degree, but they had to. So their response was to send students all around the world to learn all these techniques and build up their military. Then they would in turn do the same thing to Korea, use military force to force Korea to open their trade. 
One of the things about Japan is that because it's an island, it has limited land to be able to use to feed its people. So there was this kind of idea that was much like America, this idea of manifest destiny, that they had to move onto the main continent into China to be able to expand their, their reach. So it's weird how often that comes up. Obviously, the Lebensraum of Hitlerian Germany, the manifest destiny moving out west of the Americas, and the Japanese moving into China. They believe that history and science show the Japanese were a superior race, and in the summer of 1937, they provoked a full-scale war with China. There was a soldier that was alleged to have gotten lost in China, and the Japanese demanded access to be able to search for the soldier. Of course, this was a ruse, as far as we know, and the Japanese believed that they could conquer all of China in three months. So then we get all the aspects of the occupation. The inhabitants themselves, the Chinese, were unsure. They didn't know how the Japanese would treat them. Many fled. I think about half of the population fled. And eventually, by the end of it, not to give the end away to some degree, but 300,000 people would die. This was out of, po out of a population of a million, and after half had fled. But some of the most egregious atrocities that were attendant to this situation were when the Japanese turned to the women. And it did not matter how young or old, they could not escape rape. It was officially outlawed by the military, the Japanese military. But there were certain myths that spread around in the ranks about how raping virgins made people more powerful in battle. And the policy against it only encouraged the soldiers who engaged in it to kill their victims so there were no witnesses. This wasn't just lower soldiers either. The officers engaged in it as well. It got so bad at one point that the military created facilities of sexual comfort, and the soldiers would call these women who were in these facilities public toilets, and many women who learned they were going to be sent to these places would commit suicide. Now, the military specifically numbed their soldiers against these kinds of atrocities, especially on the way they would have these killing contests with towns and villages that they ran into. But it was the point to make sure that they became numb to these kinds of things. I think one described it as everyone became a demon within three months. There was even a doctor who went through this whole process as a Japanese soldier and committed a bunch of these atrocities who lived in Japan at the time of the writing of the book and was just practicing in Japan and played videos of his trial where he confessed to all these atrocities. Now, the city of Nanking, it fell precipitously. The Japanese had used psychological warfare, and they had early use of air attack. They initially dropped leaflets that said that they would, they would spare anyone who surrendered. Then they bombarded. This was a new event at the time, being able to use planes to attack your enemy. The Chinese military retreated eventually, and in the midst of their frantic retreat, they would run over civilians in their tanks. But really, it was from the Japanese occupation and what they did initially, it was about six weeks of horror out of the 14 years of occupation. Like I said, half the population fled. That was half a million people fled. But many of the people who were there were too poor, too weak to leave. Some of the people, as the Japanese were entering, would hang Japanese flags and went to greet the Japanese and the Japanese fired on sight. They would do things like take some of the Chinese men. They wouldn't give them water or food for a few days, but they'd keep reassuring them that they'd eventually get to them and get them some water and food. Then, after a few days, they'd bind their arms and take them out, out to mass graves and murder them there. There was one event where one of the men clung to a friend 
who was riddled with bullets and then dragged him out after the Japanese soldiers had left. The Japanese engaged in this uh, decapitation game. Like I said, they had decapitation practice earlier, and now they were going to play for real. The point was just to decapitate as many people as you could. And one specific instance of this, there was one man who wasn't completely decapitated. He just had his throat slashed out. And a man named Tang, who was standing kind of in a clump with this person, fell into the mass grave but was still alive. He hadn't been struck at all. And so after they finished playing their game and decapitating or otherwise slashing the Chinese people who were there, then one of the Japanese soldiers stayed behind and went through stabbing with a bayonet the masses of people that were in the mass grave and ended up stabbing. Tang would not react. He stayed as still as he possibly could. He was stabbed five times while he was laying there in the mass grave. But out of hundreds of people on that day, he was the only one who survived. He crawled out and got away. The Japanese would torture people. They'd use live burials. And this was the most massive rape in history. There were numerous half-Japanese children who were killed at birth over the span of this time. In broad daylight, women would have their legs pried open in the middle of crowds. Old age didn't matter. There was a 62-year-old woman who said she couldn't have sex, and a group of Japanese soldiers shoved a stick inside her. 80-year-old women would die while being raped. Even under 10 would be raped, and in some instances, subsequently sliced in half. One incident saw a pregnant woman sliced open to have her fetus pulled out, just for entertainment. But the men didn't get away. I mean, many of them obviously had been killed prior to this, but the Chinese men were often sodomized, forced to have sex with corpses. One thing the Japanese soldiers especially liked was taking men who had sworn to celibacy, like monks, and forcing them to engage in sexual acts. And they'd have families be forced to commit incest. There was one woman who was one of the stronger of the bunch. Her name was Lee, and she was pregnant. And when the Japanese were swarming the area, she bashed her head against a wall to knock herself unconscious, hoping, hoping, hoping that she would be left alone. She was stabbed 30 times by a bayonet and lost the baby, but would survive this whole ordeal and end up doing leaving. And uh, she expressed what happened in theater, whatever that's worth. But there were some resistors. There was a man named Rabe, I believe his name was, and he was like the Schindler of Nanking. He was a Nazi officer who happened to be there, though he was described as being more socialist than subscribing to really what the Nazis believed. He was appalled by the rape in the city. He sheltered as many Chinese as he could in his little compound, and he would chase Japanese soldiers who scaled the walls. He would chase them out. There was also a nurse. Her name was Wilson, and she saved a bunch of rape victims. But then there's this chronicling of this uh, apparently beautiful girl in the area who was raped by 40 men a night. And then at a certain point, her head was approximately chopped off, and she crawled her way to the hospital. Of course, while these things are going on, uh, the question is how much of this was getting out to the outer world in the midst of everything that was happening. So news reached the rest of the world during World War II. There were reporters actually on site from the New York Times, the Chicago Daily News, the Associated Press, back when reporters were not today's reporters, who are a complete joke. They even tried to save people on site. And one of them recounts that the day that they were leaving, after things were getting too dangerous, they were just running over bodies in the streets. They had piled up so much, and they saw dogs just gnawing on corpses. And as they were getting to their destination, they saw Japanese soldiers just laughing and smoking while killing Chinese people. 
and one of the Chinese people broke away, dropped to his knees, and begged the reporters to help, and the reporter lamented that he couldn't do anything. During this time, Japan was issuing all sorts of propaganda related to it, including a 1938 article called The Harmonious Atmosphere of Nanking City. Around that time, diaries leaked about what was going on and became a sensation in the rest of the world. But it was not just, it was not just the violence. There were also concerted efforts like to introduce heroin and opium and even cigarettes that were imported into the city and offered to children as young as 10. There was a deliberate effort to get people addicted to these things. As a result of this, crime would increase, and then the Japanese would use this as a rationale for more, even more, draconian acts. They even conducted medical experiments. There was a unit, A1644, where they would conduct these experiments on the Chinese inhabitants of the city, and then they'd dispose of the bodies in incinerators. The entire ordeal ended in the summer of 1945. So then the aftermath. There were trials until 1947, and the world learned even more about what was happening. There were events where men were tied to trees and kicked to death by three people. They called it a triple attack. There were events where naked women were forced to sit on hot coals. Interestingly, one in five died under the Nazis, while one in three died in Nanking. Emperor Hirohito was actually granted immunity. There are few primary sources available out of Japan. Japan destroyed most of the records before General MacArthur arrived. And China pretty much quickly forgave the Japanese for political reasons, for macro-political reasons, and this devastated survivors. Rabe, the Schindler of Nanking, tried to inform Hitler of what was going on in Nanking because he was so appalled, and he ended up getting interrogated and ostracized from German society, and then he couldn't get a job. The author is concerned that the Japanese have not come to terms with what happened. There was one particular historian who fought a 30-year legal battle to describe honestly in his history books what happened in Nanking, and this was only eventually won in the 1980s. In the epilogue, the author attempts to figure out a reason for why this could possibly happen, why the Japanese soldiers would be capable of this. And there's this idea of the transfer of oppression, that the Japanese soldiers themselves were subjected to such cruel treatment that it was a method of them being able to transfer what happened to them on somebody else. And in addition to that, this commitment to hierarchies, power hierarchies, and that power kills, absolute power kills absolutely. And the author wants an official apology and to educate the upcoming generations properly on what happened in Nanking. So, having gotten through that one, it was acclaimed and criticized to extremes. Uh, most criticisms are not about particulars, like whether a given source was valid or not, or whether a given thing happened or not. But it has a problem with the attacks on the Japanese for not dealing with it, or Japanese being particularly prone to it for some reason. Many question the reason given for why this would happen with the Japanese. You know, as far as I could tell in my reading, it was, the author uses available primary sources, you know, the third parties and the survivors. The author almost certainly has bias, though. We do have to keep that in mind. I mean, this is something that she grew up with that her parents told her about, and she was Chinese, heard about an atrocity, and wanted to figure out what happened there. So we can't know for sure how well she triaged the best sources and the most accurate descriptions. But it didn't seem to me like these were wrong, and the criticisms didn't seem like they were, like I said, challenging the particulars of it, just mostly the framing of it. And when it comes to the numbers, it's mostly supported by Chinese scholars. 
And like I said, the critics mostly have a problem with how it paints particular people as opposed to the, the specific facts that are alleged. Like, a lot of them said that there were a bunch of Japanese people who were writing a genuine history of the rape of Nanking. Okay, big picture-wise, there's a big difference in character from the quiet mechanistic genocide undertaken by the Nazis and this freakish blight on humanity. That's not to minimize, obviously, what the Nazis did. It was systematic, it was mechanistic, it was cruel and cold and targeted a particular group. But I've never heard these kinds of stories to this degree of horrible. And we just read multiple books about the Nazis and the Soviets. And that's in addition to the city being filled with disproportionately weaker individuals and just the particulars of what happened, just the worst things I've ever heard. And, you know, to some degree, the Japanese did target the Chinese believing that they were lesser from a racial standpoint. It just wasn't as genocidal a tendency as the Nazis had. They weren't trying to wipe them out. They were just trying to exert a, a barbarism over them as yet unseen. It's unbelievable what happened in the 20th century. So obviously the question always is, uh, how could people do this? Humans are designed to have a lot of psychological flexibility, and they will rationalize anything. I do wonder whether the transfer of oppression idea is kind of more widely applicable then we let on. Obviously, there's a whole bully explanation of the bullies are abused at home and therefore they transfer their oppression onto their victims at school. And you wonder how much applicability that psychological phenomenon actually has. I mean, just like when people are trying to understand how it happened in German society, it's virtually impossible to say any particular group is particularly apt to engage in atrocity. Humans are just too capable at coping and rationalizing. And especially when you don't have anyone countering your ideas, which obviously you wouldn't have, and especially less so in a military kind of a situation, it's just really easy to go along with it and engage in the worst kinds of things that you possibly think of. So anyway, that was a tough one, tough one to get through, but an extremely important book. It would be, uh, I mean, Anne Applebaum talked about it in her book, why what happened in the gulags isn't more discussed, you know, in a popular sense relative to the Nazis, and I guessed that it had a lot to do with the PR around it. I mean, the Nazis had fantastic PR. And this one, there are no symbols and no things that stand out in particular related to the rape of Nanking, if you don't know the particular details. There's no broader narrative that seems to make bigger sense of it. And Western nations just in general don't have all that much interest in what Eastern nations were doing. But hopefully, I mean, what, what am I saying? This book was written when? 97? So it's, it's been a while since it's been written. And I don't know, it didn't permeate any of my educational institutions. And I don't know that if I talked to anybody, they would have much an, an idea of it. It's definitely no wonder that Jordan Peterson walks around looking all forlorn and depressed all the time. I mean, when you know this kind of a thing has happened. There was something about it that just uh, it hit me a different way. And just thinking about that woman with her throat slashed after suffering some of the most horrible treatment imaginable and crawling her way while bleeding out to a hospital and just what she must be thinking at that point, what must be going through her head, and what is she supposed to tell herself about the narrative of her life and the meaning that she has. And Something really wrecked me in that, and I'm not sure what it was or what to do about it. Anyway, I might do like a Clifford the Big Red Dog book or something like that after that one. Just get some light and happiness. 
but it has kind of reoriented me into thinking that we should not be allowing the kind of dehumanization that goes on. Especially over the past four years, there's been a lot of rhetoric that has been dehumanizing. And there has been a lot of acceptance of collective engagement and violent acts and, and that kind of a thing, saying that it's acceptable because it's against particular kinds of people. It's just for the civilized among us and the ones who are willing to make arguments and back up propositions with evidence and have discussions and discuss things that are difficult, we should have never let it get that far. Rhetorically, we should never let it get that far. We shouldn't give anybody any kind of space, no matter what names they're going to start calling us. It's not acceptable. And whatever cowardice, whether it's financial or bodily or psychological, that prevented us from standing up, we need to overcome that. I mean, no more cowardice from here on. So anyway, that's what I have to say about about that and this was the last coffee house and i hope that we can turn a corner and realize that we are creatures of context and if you get enough of these levers and pressures pushing you in a particular direction you might end up standing on the wrong side of nanking thank you i hope all is well and i'll see you on the next one all right bye (laughs) 